I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, as we make our way through Paul's letter, we're going to consider verses 9 through 11 today. Uh, But uh, for a bit of context, actually, I'd like to read to us the last uh, few verses of chapter 5. And so I said chapter 6, but actually meant chapter 5, if you just want to look over there. Uh, We'll begin reading in chapter 5, verse 9, and so let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, and, and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And then verse 9 of chapter 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it, it, that it is living and active. And so we pray that as your word is proclaimed, that you would grant to us faith and understanding so that we might embrace all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, for the past several weeks, as we've been considering chapters 5 and 6 of 1 Corinthians, we've been considering the bigger topic of church discipline. And for the need of the church, the the vital need for the church to exercise this godly practice. You see, the Apostle Paul is reminding the Corinthians that judgment is to begin in the household of God. Like the Israelites of old, they were to purge the evil person from among their midst, as Paul quotes from the book of Deuteronomy at the end of chapter 5. And this is because God has always demanded that his people be holy, even as he is holy. And yet one glaring omission on the part of the Corinthians to exercise church discipline was the fact that they were tolerating this man who had taken his stepmother to be his wife. But also, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 6, the fact that they were failing to, uh, to settle these disputes that arose among the members, failing to judge righteously amongst the, the, their uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, was also uh, a, a failure on the part of the church to do this task that God had given to them. So in other words, the real tragedy that was going on in Corinth at the time was the church was not acting like the church, and Christians were not acting like Christ. 
And so that's why the Apostle Paul in our passage today continues his series of rhetorical questions. He asks this question over and over in chapter 6, or do you not know? Do you not know? You see, he's reminding his readers of what they had been taught, what undoubtedly he himself had taught them when he lived in Corinth for 18 months. And yet somehow they seem to have forgotten these important truths as their lifestyle was showing somewhat different. So he says, do you not know, reminding them here in verse 9 of the fact that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. This word unrighteous is the same word he used in verse 1 to describe the unbelieving judges and jury members of the civil courts to which Christians were dragging their fellow Christians before. Well, here, and, and this builds upon the contrast between the unrighteous and the saints, or those who are within the covenant community as opposed to those who are outside of the covenant community. So he says, those who are considered unrighteous, the unbelievers, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. The the notion of the kingdom of God, of course, is a very important concept that is taught in Scripture, most prominently in the Gospels, where our Lord Jesus Christ constantly teaches about the kingdom of God. But that term actually appears four times in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And whenever we talk about the kingdom of God, it's important to understand that there is one aspect of the kingdom of God that is already here. You see, when Jesus Christ came at his first coming, he inaugurated the kingdom of God. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he described the the nature of those who are citizens of his kingdom, whether they be the poor in spirit or the meek or those who mourn. And so in one sense, the kingdom of God is here, and we are members of it living under Jesus Christ's gracious reign. And yet there's another aspect of the kingdom of God that is not yet, that we await the full consummation of the kingdom that will only happen when Christ returns. And so Paul, for example, could speak of the experience that we have now with the kingdom of God in chapter 4, verse 20, when he describes that the kingdom of God consists of power, the power of salvation through the Holy Spirit. And yet here, when he speaks of inheriting the kingdom of God, he speaks of that full realization of the new heavens and new earth that will only come when Christ comes again at his second coming. And so this idea of inheriting the kingdom describes the full experience of the consummation of, the king, of, of heaven itself. But I think it's important to highlight the, the, the idea here where he says, inherit the kingdom. You see, inheritance, so this concept of inheritance reminds us that the kingdom of heaven is a gift of God's grace. It is not earned. No one earns their inheritance. It is merely given to them, bestowed upon them by virtue of the fact that they are children. And so likewise here, when Paul speaks about inheriting the kingdom, he's not saying it's something that is earned. Rather, it is something that is freely given by grace alone. And yet Paul has a very somber warning here. He warns his audience against self-deception. He says, do not be deceived. Do not think that you could live like this sinful world, that you can live like the unrighteous, the unbelievers, those who are outside of the kingdom of God. Do not think you can live that way and yet still be part of God's kingdom. 
Paul constantly in all of his letters always has to remind his readers against this form of deception. For example, Ephesians 5, 6, he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is why Paul previously told them not to associate with anyone who bore the name of brother, but through his open and unrepentant sin, uh, spoke otherwise. Because of their action, they were proving that they were not actually part of the kingdom of God. And thus, they were having a corrupting influence upon the church. That's why Paul quoted there from Deuteronomy, purge the evil person from among you. And so Paul, again, adds to this growing list of sins that he has been listing here, the type of sins that would characterize somebody's life that would show and prove that, in fact, they are not a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We saw that list start at the end of chapter 5. And now he adds to this list, and we have five vices, five sins that he describes here as examples of sinful practices that would preclude somebody from being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Now, this list that he has here in verses 9 and 10, of course, is not exhaustive. Of course, there's many other sins and vices that would preclude somebody from being a citizen of the kingdom of God. But perhaps this list is selective and pastorally sensitive. Paul knew his audience. He spent time with these people. Many of them had, become, uh, had come to Christ as a result of his initial preaching there in the city of Corinth, and he knew what type of sins they struggled with. So perhaps this list is pastorally selective and sensitive as he describes things that members of, his own con- of, the, of this congregation at Corinth had struggled with. Now, again, as Paul is listing these things, whether it be sexual immorality or greed, he's not condemning those who may have fallen into these sins, but then turned and repented from them. These are not unforgivable sins, as is clear in verse 11 when he says, such were some of you. But rather, when he describes the person who is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater, he's describing the person uh, uh, whose life is characterized Hey, <laughs> that is, it's not the first time a dog's come in here, but it's the first time a dog's walked down the aisle. We're going to do an altar call later, so. All right, backing up. The Apostle Paul is not condemning those who may have fallen into these sins and then turned and repented, but rather he's condemning those whose life are characterized by these sins. So he starts off returning to that theme in chapter 5 of, of the sexually immoral. Here he uses a very general term which, dis, which forbids all forms of sex outside of a, of a monogamous marriage between a man and a woman. Here he's using a very general term but then follows up with this term with more specific sins, whether it be adultery or homosexuality. But did you notice that as Paul is composing this list, that right smack dab in the middle of all of these sexual vices, we see the sin of idolatry? Did you notice that there in verse 9? Of course, idolatry, which at at its root is ultimately covetousness, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, failing to worship God and render thanks unto him leads to all sorts of other perversions. That's what we see Paul describe, for example, in Romans chapter 1. It's the fact that 
Mankind, although they knew God, failed to render thanks unto him and worship him properly, which leads to all other vices. That's why one rabbi in the first century said, idolatry is the root of all kinds of evil. And so here we see idolatry listed even amongst all of these sexual perversions that Paul condemns. But then following, uh, following the list of, uh, or following adulterers, we come to what is perhaps the most controversial and debated terms that are on this list, which in, at least in the ESV is translated, men who practice homosexuality. As a matter of fact, it's actually two Greek terms that the Apostle Paul uses. And yet some have suggested that the Apostle Paul here is not condemning homosexuality per se, but rather he's condemning a particularly debased form of homosexuality, such as pederasty or male prostitution, which was rampant in the ancient world. We don't have time to get into all of the details, but it is clear that the Apostle Paul, as a matter of fact, does not use those terms to describe uh, the particularly debased forms of homosexuality, but rather he uses the two terms that describe both the passive and active partners in a homosexual act. He very clearly condemns homosexuality as a sin. And I think that needs to be made very clear because there's so much confusion in the church today. There's so much, uh, uh, so much debate uh, between various sides and even amongst confessional, Reformed, and Presbyterian churches, I think there is uh, uh, some, some room for learning and growing from Scripture. So let me say it very clearly again. Homosexuality in any form is a sin and is clearly condemned by the Apostle Paul here. But the fact that it is listed amongst other sins, such as greed suggests that it is not particularly more heinous than any others. All of these sins, any one of these sins, if practiced and not repented of, will preclude you from being a citizen of the kingdom of God. Also, it's important to note that there are relatively few denunciations of homosexuality in the New Testament. There's only three places where it is explicitly forbidden. And that shows, at the very least, that it was not a preoccupation of the, uh, of the apostles, despite the fact that it was rampant in Greco-Roman culture. I think there are many other times in the New Testament where sins such as greed, sins such as gossip, sins such as slander are forbidden and, and uh, condemned in the New Testament rather than homosexuality. And so I think there are two extremes that we need to avoid. Two extremes which are, uh, unfortunately, more often than not, highlighted in popular culture today amongst the church. The one extreme, of course, is the sin of homophobia, where homosexuality is, is uh, denounced with vitriol, where uh, the idea of hating the sin and loving the sinner has gone out the window. Complete and total hatred towards those who struggle with same-sex attraction. Of course, the opposite extreme is complete and total acceptance of the homosexual lifestyle. Not just toleration, but something to be celebrated within our midst. I think the first uh, uh, clearly is uh, forbidden even following the example of the New Testament authors. As Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 6, that if anyone 
is caught in the sin, you who are spiritual should go and restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness and humility, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Scripture often forbids uh, and condemns this idea of self-righteous condemnation. And yet I would suggest to you that both of these extremes are both unloving. The first is obvious. There's hatred and vitriol. But how is it that this idea of total acceptance is also unloving? See, to tell somebody that their sinful sinful tendencies is not something that should just be tolerated and accepted, but celebrated is the most unloving thing you could say. It flies in the face of what the Apostle Paul somberly warns his audience, that if you do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So I've said it before, and I'll say it again. There is no such thing as a gay Christian. There's no, just as there is no such thing as a greedy Christian or a Christian idolater. That is because as new creatures in Christ, we have a new identity. We no longer identify ourselves by our sin. Because when we do, we identify identify ourselves according to our old man, who we were in Adam. And so to put that that descriptor or that modifier before the term Christian immediately cancels it out. You can't be an old creature and a new creature at the same time. If you are in Christ, you are part of the new creation and therefore ought no longer to identify yourself with your old habits with your sinful tendencies. Now, this is not to say that we do not struggle with our sin nature and with temptation, including, for some, same-sex attraction. But you see, we do not identify ourselves by those sinful habits. And yet, oftentimes, we hear the response, well, what? wait a minute. Doesn't God want me to be happy? Doesn't God want us to be happy? To which I would say, no. God doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. And it doesn't matter what type of sin you struggle with. If you identify yourself with that, by that sinful practice, and you do that because you think it makes you happy, God clearly forbids that. He wants us to be holy, which ultimately leads to true happiness and joy. And so here the Apostle Paul is listing homosexuality amongst these other practices as things that need to be shunned and done away with and turned away from as we repent and turn to Christ. But he doesn't end the list there. He continues his list in verse 10 as he shows that those who are motivated by greed or by hatred or those who constantly go down that path of self-destruction, that path of substance abuse, None of these people, if they identify themselves with these sinful practices, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, is the Apostle Paul saying that we can somehow forfeit our inheritance of the kingdom of God? That we can somehow be, uh, uh, we can have our salvation, but then lose it at some point? Is he suggesting that if we sin one too many times, that we forfeit our inheritance? Well, no. That's not what he's saying. The Apostle Paul is saying that for those who do not repent and believe, but rather they choose to identify themselves according to their sinful practices and habits and not identify themselves as new creatures in Christ, 
Paul is saying that those people have never been truly united to Christ. They will not inherit the kingdom of God because they were never part of his kingdom to begin with. Now, they may have joined the church, they may have been baptized, they may have made a profession of faith and are part of the covenant community, and yet by their sinful lifestyles, if, they, if their lifestyles deny that claim, then they are to be put out of the church and not told that they would be uh, in, inheriting the kingdom of God. Jesus teaches very clearly in John chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him... He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. It is impossible for a believer to be united to Christ, for part of the branch to be truly part of that vine and not produce fruits of faith and repentance. That's why Jesus says, if there's any branch that does not bear fruit, it's cut off and thrown into the fire, because ultimately they were never truly united to Christ, never given the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's why the Apostle Paul has this somber warning against self-deception for those who think that they could live any way they want according to their sinful practices and habits and yet somehow still inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says, no, that will not happen. And yet then he turns to his audience and he reminds them of the fact that they were once characterized that way, but now no longer. Look there in verse 11. as The Apostle Paul says, and such were some of you. You see, members of the Corinthian congregation used to be identified by these sinful practices. And yet Paul says, not anymore. That's not who you are now in Christ Jesus. Now we might wonder at this point, well, why the change? What brought about the change from from them being once identified by sinful practices, but now they are no longer that way? What happened to them to enable them to claim this new identity? Was it their willpower? Was it moral reform? Was it self-improvement? They, they uh, picked themselves up by their bootstraps and cleaned themselves off, and now they're willing to uh, uh, be good, moral, upright people? Well, no. You see, the Apostle Paul reminds them first and foremost of the fact that they have a new identity only because of the grace of God. It is not what they did, but ultimately what happened to them through the grace of God. As the Apostle Paul himself, later on in this book, will reflect upon the fact that he once was one who persecuted the church. He was an insolent man. And yet he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. So he reminds them of the fact that God had worked his grace in their lives. And he uses three verbs here that are all in the same tense and should be taken together as three aspects of one definitive event, one intrusion of the grace of God in the lives of these individuals. He says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. So let's look at these, these, uh, these acts briefly. First of all, he talks about washing. Now, washing, of course, denotes the removal of the impurity of sin. Sin is something that defiles us, and the washing uh, that, that God gives us here washes away those sins and makes us clean. Of course, that's most prominently signified for us in our baptisms, as we can look back as our baptism and, 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 and understand it as a washing of regeneration. 
and renewal by the power of the Holy Spirit, as Paul calls it in Titus chapter 3. You see, we could look back at our baptism and see signified there a sign and seal of our new identity in Christ, and also as motivation for us to live in newness of life. As Paul says in Romans chapter 6, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so they at one time were characterized by their sin and they had defiled themselves because of their sin, but because of the grace of God, their sins had been washed away. And then that moves on to this next act of God in, the life, in, in our lives who have been saved by Christ Jesus. He says, you have been sanctified. Now, typically when we hear that word sanctified, we think of that lifelong process by which we are made more and more like Christ Jesus. This benefit of sanctification, of being made progressively more and more holy as we're conformed to the image of God. But that's not what Paul is referring to here. And I think that's clear from the fact that he uses this single one-time act, this, this, uh, the same tense as being washed and justified. Here's referring to a one-time act of God. And we should understand the word sanctified in its literal sense, that is, made holy or set apart. And so positionally, we at one time were unrighteous, but because of the grace of God, we have been made holy or perhaps consecrated. At one time, we were sinners, but now, because of the grace of God, we are saints. That's how the the Apostle Paul started off this letter, as he addresses the Corinthians by by saying that those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. You see, it's always important to be reminded of our status, that when God looks at us, he doesn't see the filthy, rotten sinners that we are, Rather, he sees a congregation of holy people, of saints, because of the work of Christ. And that brings us to our third and final act of God, the grace of God in the lives of all of us who have been saved. We have been justified. This term justified literally means to be declared righteous in God's sight. This is a legal act. If washing dealt with the defilement of sin and... and, uh, And sanctification dealt with our status of being made unrighteous to be made holy. Justification has to do with our standing before God and being declared righteous by God is the the act of justification. Now, he does this only because of the righteousness of Christ that has been counted to us. When God declares you righteous, it doesn't have to do with any of your own acts of righteousness. Those are all filthy rags in the sight of God's sight. But rather, he imputes or credits, counts the righteousness of Christ to you, and you are accepted in his sight as a result of that. And so taken together, washed, sanctified, justified, these are the acts that God has done for each and every one of us who have placed faith in Christ Jesus. But ultimately, he does all of this All three of these blessings come through the authority and power and through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why the Apostle Paul says that these things all happened in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's only because of him, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection that he could bestow these blessings upon us. That he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who for us became righteousness and sanctification and redemption. As Paul has said back at the end of chapter 1, all of these blessings come not because of us, not because of our own merits, but only through the work and mediation of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And yet that's not where the Apostle Paul stops. He says it was done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it was done by the Spirit of our God. It's amazing when we consider the work and operation of the Holy Spirit in applying the benefits of Christ, we do not often think about, we, we, do, we often think of the Holy Spirit in the work of sanctification, or perhaps in the work of regeneration. As the Apostle Paul already told us back in chapter 2, that only those who have been renewed by the Spirit of God are able to uh, accept and understand the things freely given by God. And then later on in the book, we'll see, especially in chapter 12, how it's the Holy Spirit who who gifts us, who enables us to love and serve our neighbors as members of the body of Christ. There we see the Holy Spirit's work in both regeneration, making us alive, and sanctification, helping us love and serve our neighbor. But here the Apostle Paul explicitly connects the work of the Holy Spirit with our justification. Our justification. Now, how does that work? Well, you see, ultimately it's the Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ. That's because he's in heaven and we're on earth. And it's the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ who unites us to him. And by virtue of the fact that we are united to Christ, not only are we made alive, not only are we conformed more and more into his image, but we also have that positional standing of being righteous, of being justified, of being holy in God's sight. And so there we see the operation of the Spirit setting us apart, taking us from the domain of darkness, taking us out of this lost and sinful world and making us new creatures in Him. As we consider these passages, this warning that the Apostle Paul has for us, this warning against self-deception, and also this reminder of what we have in Christ Jesus, what God has done for us through His grace, May we never forget who we are in Christ Jesus. We are new creatures. Let us never identify ourselves by our sinful practices, but rather may we, by the Spirit of God, identify ourselves as new creatures in Christ, and may our lives be characterized by love, love of God as well as love of our neighbor. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you were pleased in the fullness of time to be born of woman, to be born under the law, and to suffer a life of obedience and to suffer the curse of death that we all deserved upon the cross. And you did this in order to give us life, in order to give us your righteousness, in order to redeem us from sin and Satan and to make us new creatures. And so, Lord, may we never forget who we are in you. 
And may you continue to sanctify us more and more as you conform us into your image. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.